Farm Green, Rick Clark here this evening. I believe this is podcast number four with my good friend Ryan Ciroli from Cargill. Uh, Ryan is the global row crop sustainability lead at Cargill. He has many roles within this platform, and I do want to be very specific here. Cargill is one of the leaders in this space. And we are going to learn a lot tonight about, about what Cargill's future looks like, what their stance on things are currently, you know, where they're moving in this regenerative space, sustainable, whatever, whatever definition Ryan wants to use. Um, Ryan, I cannot thank you enough for joining us this evening. A um, couple quick words. What, what, what's on your mind right now, Ryan? Um, so first, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I was thrilled when I got the invite, and uh, anytime I get to spend with you is is uh, I'll jump at it. So I appreciate this opportunity. I, I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, You're welcome. Yeah, no, honestly, what's on my mind, right? I mean, um, uh, everything going on in the world today. So I have yeah. uh, friends and close colleagues that are in Ukraine, and and um, been thinking a whole lot about them today, and and uh, everything going on there. It's 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 tough not to be thinking about that, and. And yep. uh, tough day for the world. So, yeah, it's uh, it's just crazy what we're we're living in here. Let's just stay right there for just a moment, Ryan. What you know, I, I saw today on on one of the social media platforms that one of your vessels got uh, I don't know if attacked is the right word, but it, I'm sure it had grain on it. Uh, it got diverted away by Russian Russian ships. I mean, what? what what do you see what's this going to mean for the farmer i mean how do, how does cargill wrap your brain around what happened today yeah um i it's a great question um not not sure that i have a, a an official answer or anything like that on it but um obviously for us you know we are a, a global company we have a, a large footprint in in ukraine um i mean it's a some you know, major agricultural, amazing agricultural company or country, right? When you think yeah. about um, sunflowers and corn and, and wheat and, and all of the things that they're, they're major, uh, major supplier. Um, right. and, and so it's going to have an impact, right? Exactly what that means. I'm, I'm not sure, but, but as a, as a major exporting country and, and, and when you have ports shut down and facilities shut down and, and all of the uncertainty, you know, it just adds to, um, just all of the uncertainty we're seeing in agriculture today and 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 the volatility we see so right. certainly implications but that's that's probably the best i can offer today <laughs> yeah and and i and i you know i know that's a pretty broad question to ask we did have a quick question from frank there um what do you think this will do to input prices you think they'll continue to to escalate um you know i would assume they'll probably there's so much uncertainty right now the volatility is unreal, but uh, you know what do you, you know, obviously cooler heads prevail always. What, what do you what do you think uh, you see for input prices? Um, again, probably the wrong person to be asking for a, an expert opinion here. But I mean, I, I believe my understanding is I think you, Ukraine is an exporter of of, of uh, nitrogen and and, and other. Um, I'm not sure what else, but but on the fertilizer right. front, and so it's. Anytime you get a further supply disruptions and further uncertainty and, and the volatility we see, um, can't imagine that's going to help a whole lot. But. Right. 
Russell, Russell, let us know. I think Urea's up 32% today. Uh, UAN's up 27%. I saw some numbers overnight that uh, uh, UAN was up $160. So that's probably that translation that, that Russell just gave us. Uh, it's just crazy, crazy, crazy uh, what's happening. And, and this to me just again exemplifies on how fragile this, this whole system is. I mean, we've got to get on this bandwagon of reducing inputs, getting to be more sustainable, becoming more regenerative, and not be dependent on these inputs as, as much as we truly are today. Um, as most people know, I've taken everything away, which I know that's an extreme view, but we don't have to be, you know, that extreme on this. We can be somewhere in the middle, and I think that's where you're trying to head with Cargill here. Uh, but now, before we go there, Ryan, I want to go, I want to talk about you first, and I want to go back, and I want you to start, you know, where did this journey for you begin, and how did you get this notion that, that, sustainability is what is what we're going to need for the future yeah i mean it's been an interesting ride so my, my background's in agriculture and food i grew up on the east coast i grew up in pennsylvania um managed a farm in maryland uh grain and and, and beef cattle for a number of years um and where i grew up i grew up just literally right on the chesapeake bay or right you know in that chesapeake Bay area and so you know we were no tilling and you know uh double cropping you know barley and beans and you know doing a lot of these things that, that's kind of what i knew and and when i moved to the midwest and i moved out west and i spent a lot more of my time in uh, around the u.s and other countries right all of a sudden it was like that wasn't normal you know and i didn't know that my my i just thought no tilling and you know uh yeah. more more diverse rotations just was what you did um so, so, so i think I had... as i've i've worked in Hey, Ryan, I'm sorry. So at that point, when you were in that Chesapeake Bay area, they were already deep into conservation, trying to clean the, the bay water up and all that. You were, you were deep in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly. I, I think, um, you, you know, just the, the, that desire to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, and when you think about all of the things in place, and there was a lot of support, right? I mean, there was a lot of programs in those regions to help with um, no-tilling and, and conservation you know, all kinds of different things as you think about conservation and we farmed a lot of hillsides. And so you know, mm -hmm. terraces and swales and you, you name it, we, we were doing it. The growing season worked too, right? I mean, we had weather in our favor or, or growing degree days in our favor. So you could grow wheat and then, you know, come behind it or, or barley and come behind it with, with beans and, and no-till everything, right? And so it was just, it was a lot of common practice and a lot of, you know, favorable conditions to be able to do that. A lot of support, you know, um, conservation districts and everybody else and, and and so there was just a lot of things that were pretty uh common in the area and that's that's kind of what i had what i had learned and what i had known right so see that you know that we are so opposite on that ryan because the way i grew up in the midwest it was till 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 turn it over turn it over you can't have any residue on top if there is you do it again and it's just that mindset of trying to change uh, those people uh, to try something different. So it, I wonder then, with you coming from that background of more of a conservation-minded practice, that probably flowed easier with you coming to the Midwest. Is that 
a safe assumption to make? It was because because I think you your concept of normal, right, or your concept of of what you can do or what's what's achievable. You know, when you do that for a number of years, and that's what you see, it's it's a whole lot easier to, um, you know, think about the what's possible or, or or what you can do. And so when you start seeing every different system, right? I mean, I worked a lot in in the Western U.S. I've worked in kind of all around the place, right? And and have a very different perspective of what does this look like if you're in an arid part of Colorado or Wyoming versus if you're in the Dakotas versus if you're in Southern Indiana, right? And I live in Minnesota now, right? And the amount of, of it just, it was crazy for me to move up here and see just the amount of tillage everywhere, right? Every field ripped or, you know, I hadn't seen a mold plow, mold plow, plow in 30 years and we were still mold plow plowing up here. And and you start to understand the why and then what's possible, right? So I think when you see all of these different things and you start asking yourself, why are you doing it? Why do we do things here, right? What is what is driving that? And there's always a reason, right? There's always a, a you know, you begin to realize there's all of these reasons driving why people do, do in each area. And then you start to go, okay, but what's possible, right? Or what could you do different? And, you know, what what are the pathways to, to, to something different? And I think as I learned, as I got more interested and more started to really understand more, not just the practice, but the starting to understand more about things like soil health. What does that really mean? What are we really talking about when you get into soil biology? And what are we really talking about when we talk about the soil health principles? And it just opened my mind, right? It opened, it opened the possibilities to like, wow, you know, when you start thinking about the why behind what you're doing and not just the practice, it, it becomes really interesting. And, um, and I think about the time I realized that is when I met you, right? I think um, what five or six years ago, walking onto your farm and starting to go, oh my God, like you can actually start putting all these things together and do this at scale. And like, I just, it, it was an, it was amazing, right? I think yeah. um, seeing how you thought in, in a very, in a world that doesn't farm like you do, it just was such a contrast and such an interesting way for me to think about uh, what's this idea of what's possible, right? What are, what, where can you actually go with this and how do you actually change a system? And, you know, and, and, and when you focus on the basics or you focus on the principles, like it's, it's pretty amazing. So. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. But yes, you're exactly right. You focus on those principles of soil health and then we've just been able to push it, um, you know, to the limit here and, and take everything away. So, uh, I'm glad I've inspired you that, that that's an honor. Um, so, so let's move a little further. Okay. So tell me about some of the, some of the stops you've made along the way, who you've worked for and, and, you know, th that that's building now I'm, we're getting to Cargill here in just a few minutes, but this is all building to where you are at Cargill as the sustainable lead there. So give me, Give me, give us some, some, some of the stops you've made and, and what you've accomplished there. Ryan, Ryan, are you there? I can hear you now. I lost okay. you there for a moment. I'm sorry. Okay. Did you get my question? I didn't. So what okay. was your question? I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. My question was, uh tell us a little bit about some of the stops you've made up until your current position at cargill and and what was the impact at those stops and and it's all building now to where you are at cargill so uh give us some of the some of some more of the journey to get to where we are today sure um 
so I spent a number of years working in, in dairy nutrition, first on the East Coast. Um, uh, and I actually spent, uh, had the opportunity to go work for Monsanto. And so kind of took me to, took me out West. So moving me to Colorado in mid 2000s and, and actually was started working with dairy producers uh, all around the Western US. Um, came to Cargill in about 2008 um, in our animal nutrition business, but I spent a lot of time starting to think about the connections that Cargill had. So I was actually working with dairy producers and, and think, and helping them connect with, um, uh, downstream consumer brands, uh, consumer packaged goods companies. So kind of rethinking about, a, you know, what's that, uh, how do you rethink that dairy supply chain and have more connection, right? It was about transparency. It was about managing price risk. It was about a lot of different things. Um, and as, as we started doing that, I, it was my first opportunity to start working with consumer brands, right? Consumer packaged goods companies, retailers, um, and, and, and really thinking more about kind of the supply chain and, and consumers and, and some of these things that were driving, um, driving some change through that, right. I, I started learning, um, you know, this desire to have more transparency in the supply chain, right. This, this really starting to be interested again, we're mid to 2010, 11, 12 in there when there was this first real big push around sustainability, right? And sourcing sustainable agricultural ingredients and goals for 2020, right? And started to kind of understand more about what were some of these consumer brands really looking for? What was the role of agriculture? You know, what was, what were we trying to do there? And so over that, you know, those, those number of years, really just having more insight across the supply chain, which I found to be fascinating, right? And trying to think about how do you, you know, how do you put agriculture first, but but also meet the needs of what you're kind of asking from in this not very clearly defined world of sustainability just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, had the opportunity to I actually left Cargill for a few years and and uh, went to work for um, for Danone in, in North America. So I got to work for you know a large dairy based company um, where I met you, mm-hmm. um, and it was really uh, interesting to be able to work within a consumer brands company and. Um, you know, think about what that really meant and how it really operated and, and being able to work with producers in that realm. And it was a really cool time because I think that's when we were starting to move from, you know, sustainably sourced ingredients to thinking about how do you drive real impact, right? And so as companies were starting to set science-based targets and really thinking about not just sourcing sustainably, but really how do you reduce emissions? You know, how do you improve, you know, water? How do you improve biodiversity? And starting to really recognize the power of agriculture through that, and in particular, the power of things like soil health, right? And, you know, now regenerative agriculture as a means of really moving the needle, you know, really actually dry, driving towards real impact, but doing it in a way that's that that works with farming, right? It works with agriculture. And so it was a f- wonderful experience and a wonderful time. Um, and then had the opportunity to come back to Cargill. And I've been back at Cargill now for uh, going on four years really working deeply in this, you know, how do you scale the adoption of, of soil health, regenerative agriculture, kind of at scale in the commodity space. Um, and it's been a, it's been an awesome journey. So. Yeah. So uh, we've got a question from Jay here, but I'll get to it in just a moment. So let's go back just a little bit there, Ryan, who, you know, when you were with Cargill the first time when they, when you were in Colorado, that Western part, you talked a lot about you know transparency and sustainability. At that point in time, who was driving that? Was that was that the consumer telling you, or was that the 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 pro, the processing? Who was making that? Who was driving that? 
very much from the consumer lens, right? So your consumer brands, your retail brands, right? And I think this real desire to think about sustainably sourced. And you know, and you had a few large companies that were really driving that and were really wanted to figure out how to how to get there, right? But it was very much a um, asking for data, asking for you know, surveys, asking for farmers to, to engage in with different tools, if you will, just to understand kind of what were you doing today and, and really that push towards more transparency. And so I think the first wave was about how do you get more transparency, but it was pretty much a, you know, go to a farm, ask, ask for information, ask for data, kind of verify what's happening. Right. And so it was, it was a, it was a good first step, but it wasn't really moving the needle towards like driving real change, right. Real impact. But it was like, how do we see what's happening? How do we have more visibility to what's going on? But, you know, that's been there for a long time and it's just increasing, right? There's this constant desire for more transparency, more understanding of what's happening from the farm gate all the way through to the, the products ultimately sit in front of a consumer. But that shift has really been in that with the rise of, you know, science-based targets, net zero commitments, just things where you actually now have to show that you're, you're really driving real impact. It's measurable, it's quantifiable that's changing the whole landscape of what we do, our actions, the yeah. investments that are happening. It's a real shift. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, Ryan, at that point, and we're talking about 10, 11, 12 here, you know, 13, I'll be honest with you. There was a point there where I was concerned that this could fizzle because there weren't enough people or companies coming out and getting on board and st making those commitments. You know what? We will be carbon neutral by such a date, or we will, you know, decrease our footprint by this amount. You weren't getting that kind of, of uh, commitment from the big players. So now you've moved to Dannon and they came out and they, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were probably one of the first to publicly state uh, that they would be carbon zero by, I think by 2030, I think is their number. Yeah, I, it was at the time, I think it was, it was 2050 and, but yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, kind of a, a leading brand in the space and they were all in, right. I mean, they, they were, they were serious and they, and they wanted to figure out how do we actually do this? Right. And, you know, structured, but they had invested in, you know, working directly with dairy producers. They'd worked with, you know, wreath, you know, thinking differently about, about how they how they engage in the supply chain, right? And 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 so I think one of of, of several you know companies that have really led this charge, right? And really yeah. led you know how do you how do you think a little differently? How do you engage in the supply? How do you you know how do you put you know farmers first? How do you put ag at the center of what you do and kind of work back instead of kind of pushing right. it towards that? So, well, let's get to Jay's question. Uh, Jay, I, I hope I get your last name correct. Moore, M O H R, Jay Moore. Uh, what are Cargill's priorities for sustainability? How are they thinking about these in the context of their respective business units? And how do they plan to measure this? And I can go through these questions again. The first one is what are Cargill's priorities for sustainability? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a number of different areas we're focused on, right? That that, But in general, if you distill it down, we're gonna have clear focus points on climate, on water resources, uh, farmer prosperity, you're going to have areas on human rights, uh, land use change, uh, you know, uh, on, on that front um, as, as, as key areas that we're focused on, right? Um, and depending on what supply chain you're in, what part of the world you're in, 
you know, you, you, you may focus on different things, but the climate elements is, is all encompassing, right? That's there. The water resource element, right? Especially as we're thinking about the role of, of regenerative agriculture and, and the role of soil health. And we're really looking at that through the lens of, of climate, water, and, and the farmer, um, you know, prosperity or, or resiliency aspect of this. And, and by engaging in these areas, right, thinking about how do you, how do you set programs up or how do you engage in, the, in, in, in agriculture in a way that you can deliver outcomes that are measurable. And so I think that's what we're constantly challenged to do to say is any program you stand up, you know, first and foremost, are farmers going to actually participate? Right? Are they gonna? Do they see value in it? Because if they don't, it's kind of there's really no point in doing this. But then once you know, how are you structuring in a way that that they see value and they're willing to come along? And and then how do you make sure that you're setting up um, systems that you can actually measure or, or quantify the impact of the outcomes of what you're doing? Um, and so that's that's been where a lot of the effort has been. Yeah, and, and that you know, Ryan, that goes back to the things that that we all preach about. You've got to collect data. You've got to, to keep that data. You've got to draw your baselines. You've got to, you've got to see where you've been and where you're going. Um, you know, it's all, it's all the things that we all know we're supposed to be doing. We just need to get back to those roots and collect that data, get, gather that information, and then know what to do with it once you have it. Um, because there will, you know, this, this movement is gaining traction. There's no doubt about it. And what I like about this regenerative, I'm going to call it regenerative movement, is in my opinion, it's being farmer led. And I think that's very important here. So uh, with that being said, though, we still need to monitor what we're doing because someday there's going to be someone's going to say, well, well show me that this really is working. And those metrics need to be in place. So Jay, that was a great question. Um, Ryan, thanks for that answer. But, you know, you mentioned something there that and, and obviously we're going to talk about climate in a little bit, but I want to go somewhere else first. Um, you know, I don't think that we think about water enough. We if you think about the municipalities across the just the United States alone, those municipalities have got to be scared to death that their water supply for their communities might not be suitable to drink. So they should be all on board with these sustainable regenerative type practices. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's interest and I think you're starting to see places where um, there's great examples of starting to think differently, right? We've been involved in, in, in Iowa and in actually in a, a, a program called the Soil Water Outcomes Fund, right? And, and it was literally, right, it's rewarding farmers for both water quality outcomes benefit improvements as well as the carbon side and the municipalities, right? Um, the city of Cedar Rapids, the city of Ames, you know, participated in this because it was a, it was an interesting way to think about, you know, how do you lessen the load coming into their facilities, right? By, by investing upstream in regenerative agriculture. And I think, you know, it is a great example of, you know, how do we think a little bit differently? Underlying all of this though, right, is, is, is you need enough scale that you can reduce the impact enough that you could actually maybe make different decisions if you're a municipality, right? Or if you're thinking about, you know, uh, you know, example that we always talk about, you know, often talk about is flood mitigation, right? I mean, if you can, if you can have a giant sponge upstream because we're holding water, you know, we, we've improved water holding capacity by, you know, whatever rate you want, are you keeping water where it belongs? Right. You know, are we lessening that 
that runoff to the point where we we're not flooding cities. Well, that's in concept, it, it's amazing, right? And you're going, why wouldn't we do that? But you need enough scale, you can lessen the impact enough that you could truly avoid catastrophic loss. And so I think it's it's the ideas are there. Then it's how do you put this together in a in a geography in a way that you could scale it enough that, that you could you could show really big measurable impacts. And that's what excites me is I think there's some there's things we haven't even scratched the surface on, but it's possible, right? Just think about that. You know, the billions of dollars that a community could could might feel because of of a flood impact. And if you could literally, if you could better manage that because you, you've dealt with that upstream, and then the water quality benefits, and then what does it mean for you as a grower? And, and, and your ability because you're keeping water where it belongs instead of it all running off. So, I mean, there, there, there's some really fascinating things there when you really start thinking about the full system benefits and what does it mean, not just on the farm, but in the communities that we're in or downstream of those communities. Yeah. And, and that's what I meant by there, there's this, this component is not talked about enough. So every, everything you've said, you know, gives me goosebumps and is exactly correct. But now let's go to that Iowa farmer who wants to farm corn and soybeans and i mean they've got they've got dirt like nobody else does and they're gonna they're gonna raise 250 plus bushel corn or whatever the number is i don't i don't know and i don't care but how ryan how are we going to get those folks on board to work within that watershed group to help save that water quality of that municipality how are we going to do that you know i i think I've heard you say, right, you, you've got to create a good first experience, no matter where they're starting from, right? And so, so to me, it's where are they starting from? What are the things that would, you know, drive the interest that would say, I'm willing to participate? Um, what are the risks? What are the things that they're, they're interested in? Is it, you know, the, is it, hey, if I had some additional assistant, technical, you know, assistance, you know, to get started, maybe. Um, I actually think, you know, we're, we're doing a lot with markets, right? And market-based incentives to think about, is that enough to just say, this is interesting enough, you know, take some of the risk off, I'm willing to participate. Um, you know, what's that thing that unlocks them to take the first step? And, and for me, that's always the question is, what is the, what is that, what are those suite of choices? Whether it's, I listened to a podcast, you know, and, and I, I heard what this crazy guy Rick's doing down in Indiana, and maybe I'll take a first step and try it. Or is it, a, I have the right, you know, uh, you know, somebody's offered me a financial incentive that it's a, it's enough per acre that I'm willing to take a first step into this, or it's, you know, whatever it is, right? What are those suite of things that that get you to take that first step and and have you have a good experience so that you're willing to just either continue on that path or take the next step with it? And I think that's what we're constantly, you know, thinking about. That's what we're constantly pushing for is just how do you have that right suite of choices, programs, support, things out there that you can engage those growers to do this at first and then and then do it on more of their their more of their fields more of their acres and that their neighbors are willing to come on board with it too yeah and i'm going to stop you there real quick now this is where we get into the most recent um principle that's been added here is context and i i'm sure your company fights this all the time because you've got growers out west that are going to be high plains going to be mo mo mostly cereals now you come to the Midwest, corn beans, and then you go north south. Now you got temperature issues. You've got freezing, non-freezing. I mean, this is a struggle. So now you as a company have to come up with programs that work for the the cereal grain folks, the the corn and the soybean folks, Milo, you know, whatever the case may be. So expand on that a little bit. 
yeah i mean you start with every farm is different right yeah and and a farm in minnesota right i mean i have a full appreciation for living in this state and and you know doing and and the challenges we run against here versus those that are in the west and when you have constrained moisture versus you know we're i grew up on the east coast right you you, you, you it's all so different and the context absolutely matters and so how you have good experiences in each of those areas matters right and so not being i would just say we start with don't be prescriptive right it's not just the the solution is everybody should just you know go plant rye as a cover crop and you're great right that's just it everybody plant a cover crop and there's a lot of that today right there's a lot of just just go plant cover crops but you know that's not going to work everywhere and so i think as you as we build programs or as we roll out programs taking into account that context that local context and thinking about do you have enough choices in what you do you know are you giving farmers that choice right do, do they have the flexibility to say you know on my farm this is where i want to start and is the support there and that's not an easy thing to do right but i think that's absolutely what we're trying to think about is how do you do this that gives the most flexibility with the least amount of barriers and that uh, you know a farmer will come along and say i'm i'm willing to i'm willing to take a first step right yeah and i you know sometimes you just have to look for that that one farm that that maybe might persuade others in that area you know find that farm uh, start the programs there and then you can build that, that base out and then um obviously you got to have a market first we know that so it's all i mean i can't imagine the complexity involved here of trying to get the the end user lined up with the farmer lined up to change practices and then what's all this mean at the end of the day you know uh, i suppose one of the first questions the farmer is going to ask you when when cargill comes knocking on the door with a new program is what's it going to what's it going to mean to me what are, what's what's it, how's it benefiting me so do you have can you go into any kind of details with pick one of your programs out is it a, an increase in price is it a premium i mean how does the system work if you if you can discuss that well so i i'm i, I mean we're really interested and focused on outcome-based markets right so today it's carbon but i but i want to be cautious that it's not let's not get caught in the carbon trap of all things carbon markets will solve everything they won't right but i think today it's carbon i'm thinking more broader how do you how do you solve ecosystem service markets right how do you bring water into the into the fold but what i but what we really really like about outcome based markets is you're not being prescriptive i'm not coming to you to say you know i'm paying you for a practice i'm paying you for an outcome right and then the choice becomes okay what are those things that are going to yield outcomes on my farm you know is that a tillage change is have already am I already no till right am i in you know Western Nebraska, and I'm already, you know, I've been a no-teller for 20 years. Okay, so what else can come into the play, right? And so I think it at least leads to that conversation about, you know, how do you get there? We're still early on, right? I mean, we, we've got a ways to go yet with, with our programs to say, how do you make sure you bring that full optionality and that support to help farmers be able to do that? But I love the outcome-based approach because then it's, it's not prescriptive. It's about how does you start with your farm on that field with your context and do those things that'll that'll yield the positive outcome in the way that makes sense for you. That's easy for me to say. It's it's harder to do. But but I, our you know at the end of the day, remove barriers, give flexibility back to the farm to make choices instead of being prescriptive, 
and then figure out, you know, what does that really mean for me? And so that's, okay. that's the underlying philosophy. All right. So now, now let me, let's go uh, on a side of the equation that we usually don't talk about. Let's go to the buyer side of the equation of this carbon market. It, what are you, I mean, let's, there are so many thought processes on this carbon notion that are you going, obviously we're going to have to come down to, to two or three or four choices here, but are the buy, can a buyer say, you know what, Cargill, I don't like what your program is. We will never buy a, a, a carbon credit from your company because we don't think for whatever reason you're doing enough or you're doing too much work. Is that, is that a possibility in this arena that we're in? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, um, by making choices, right, you, you may not make the choices that everybody's looking for. And so the question is, is what, what is the end goal? What are the really big end goals that we're all trying to solve? So if you look at whether Cargill has a science-based target, our customers may have science-based target and zero targets. A lot of them increasingly have regenerative agriculture volumes that they're trying to hit, their water targets. And, and increasingly, we know we need to move towards impact, right? We have to we have to solve ourselves, right? So that's driving a lot of this to say, how do we meet our own objectives? And we've got eight, right? We've got eight, eight crop cycles left. We've got eight crop cycles to 2030 to be able to meet these yeah. objectives that we've laid out. And yeah. so you can you can sit and wait and say, are we back to backing? Are we aligning with everything that everybody wants? Or do you go, I need to scale. And for us, that connection with the farm, that, that access, you know, those relationships we've had with growers forever because as a grain buyer, those are sacred, right? Those are super important to us. And so if you start with going, you know, what will farmers lean into that you can scale in this space? What do we think that that's going to take? And so for us, it's really about make the investments that'll drive scale and that'll drive the biggest impact. And, and, and from there say, now, how do you put this in a form that can, you can help your customers meet that? That's that's philosophically different than where we used to be, right? It used to be, it was yeah. the signal would come from downstream and you'd come back to you and say, here's what you want. Can you go get this? And, and we weren't moving it, right? So for us, I think we have to have a farmer-centric approach. You have to start there and say, if you want scale, at the end of the day, if, if you as a grower choose not to adopt something or not to make the change, it doesn't really matter what everybody else wants because you, you, you have to drive the scale at the farm gate. And so we start there and then say, how do we put this in a form to help meet those goals? And again, if everybody has aligned targets, science-based targets, net zero, whatever, and you're tied to agriculture and you recognize the value of it, then it's we can work through the mechanics of saying, how do you put it in a form to help them meet their objectives? So yeah. I, I think we're going the right direction. But we've, we're coming at this from a from a farmer first lens, and, and, and you have to. Like, otherwise, we'll never scale this. So that's very refreshing. Thank thank you very much because you are exactly right. Cargill has not lost the focus here that this is still based on the farmer and their performance here. So thank you. Very refreshing point of view. We're going to come back to that. We got we got a few questions piling up here. Um, I'm going to go back to Jay real quick. Can you further define an outcome-based market? What What do you mean by outcome-based? Yeah. So today that would be, you know, if you're car looking at on the carbon front, you know, a carbon sequestration and, and and carbon reductions, right? So sequestration, you know, coming from uh, modeled and or measured, right? We can argue, we can get into a whole debate here about that, but but in general, right? We're we're looking at, um, you know, as you adopt soil health principles, right? And in particular, right, if we're talking cover crops, if you're talking tillage, if you're looking at 
you know, um, how do your rotations change and then the fertilizer aspects of what you're doing. So the fertilizer, if you're using less of it, that's a reduction versus if you're looking at, um, you know, cover crops and tillage change, you're looking at more on the sequestration front, most in general. So how are we, how are we measuring those impacts from a, from a carbon impact standpoint? And at the end of the day, basis, your soil type, your, your, your growing degree days, when did you terminate your cover crop? How'd you manage your system, you know, on your farm, on, on this field that you enrolled, you know, versus what you were doing last, you know, before, right? So you're in your, here's the additionality thing that always brings up a lot of questions, but we're, we're talking about new practices, right? Or, or new adoption of, of systems on a field. How do you, how do you measure the impact of what's happening, i.e. the carbon reduction, the carbon sequestration, you know, and on a given acre, you're probably, you know, a third of a ton, half a ton, maybe a ton an acre, um, right soil types, right, right practices, things like that, that could yield those yeah. outcomes. And the same thing on water, right? I mean, I think there's different ways to model and measure the impacts on water quality. Um, and then there's the whole water availability front too, so. Yeah, and I've, I've, we've got a lot of questions here. Um, good friend of mine, Risa Damasi, has, has asked a question with uh, Grassland Oregon. Um, and I think it's more of a, of a comment, but what she's, what she's getting at is, you know, I think we, we try to get too complicated with these metrics that we're trying to measure these changes with. I mean, she's looking at, at our farm and she knows that we've eliminated input. So, I mean, how could you better measure what someone's doing by the elimination of, or the reduction of inputs and then still, and you know, I don't like to use yield, but we do need to make sure that we're headed in that right direction. And it's not about yield. It's about, it's about your return on investment and, and what your profitability is. So yeah, our yields may pull back some, but if we're eliminating now these high dollar inputs and you can easily show that and document that, that that's all the more complex this thing needs to be. Now, I know there's more to it than that, but that's, you don't need these sophisticated, complicated metrics to have success here. So actually I'll talk about it in two ways. One is um, we, had, we had done, we did a two year, a really good piece of work. I, I really, I'm glad we, we partnered with the Soil Health Institute looking at the economics of soil health management systems. And the goal there was really to look at what is that, what are those benefits, right? At the end of the day, from a grower lens of, of investing in these systems, right? And I think we had a hundred growers across nine states that, that, that had to have been doing this for at least five years, right? And we looked at it, we asked them questions about, you know, resiliency and things like that. And then we got into the economics, right? And at the end of the day, it was, you know, when you're looking at a net return per acre, right? Which is what we're talking about. It's not about yield. It's not, it's net return per acre. These systems were paying really, you know, 40, 50, 60 bucks an acre net return benefit because they, they adopted this, right? Lower inputs, fewer passes, you know, and most of them actually saw yield benefits, right? So you're getting the additional yield with fewer inputs. And, but even if not, right, you're still looking at a net return per acre. Right. And so from a grower standpoint, that's where we're looking at to say, look, we're not going into this because of a carbon market, you, you know, and if you're doing this just for a carbon market payment, it's probably the wrong reason to be doing this. If you're looking right. at this through the lens of we're advancing soil health, we're advancing regen ag because it's going to make me, it's going to improve my net return per acre. And this whole question around resiliency is a critical one, right? What, how do you start quantifying the benefits of being more resilient, drought, flood, whatever, right? Pests, you name it. 
so really thinking about we're working towards that, not a carbon payment. So that's that side. And so, yeah, you, you probably don't need all of the metrics at the end of the day, if you're going, you know, I can see this, I can, I can see this on my own farm. Like I, I could care less if you can tell me detailed metrics of my soil carbon levels. The flip side of this is what is, what are we asked being asked for downstream, right? What is food retailers, this whole system looking for? And that is to be able to show that you're driving impact, right? The, the investment that we're asking for to come back to agriculture, you need to be able to actually show and, and, and back up with a degree of confidence that, that, that you're showing a, a real change, genuine impact. And so from there, if you want to have trust in the system, you've got to have enough data and enough, enough measurements and enough metrics to actually show that indeed it's there, right? Because what do they value? They value from their brand standpoint for their shareholders, for the investor community, that's increasingly saying you, you need to decarbonize what you're doing. You need to be a responsible business. And by doing so, the only thing you have to show, you know, what do you have to show for that? Well, I need those metrics, right? I need that data and I need to be able to back up and say that, hey, we, we did this. And so that's where this trade-off between how do you bring incentives or how do you bring market signals or how do you bring investment back to the ad side? We need that from to draw the investment and, and you know, but at the farm gate, you might not see the value in it, but it's other things that you see value in. So it, it is, it's. It, yeah, it could be simple and it could be complex both. But do you think, Ryan, that 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 we will get to a point to where the industry will say, you know what, we are as an industry going to accept these five metrics, you follow these five and we're all good to go? I think we're going to get closer to we're going to we're going to come we'll get closer to it right i think there's so much interest and so much learning right now at some point you have to kind of come around like what are what's good enough right what is robust enough what are those things that we we, we really need how do you measure it right and so we're always going to have to measure this this you know what's the least amount of burden we can put on you as a grower and you're still willing to participate or or, or engage in this but how do i do it in a way that there's enough trust and enough rigor behind what we do to meet the needs on the other end. And, 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 and somewhere, I think, and I think we're going to go from it's wonky today to something that, that feels that's more easy to manage, right? Can we, can we do more with, with modeling? Can we do more with remote imagery? Can we do more that it really removes a lot of that burden and says it's, we're getting it. And I think we will, but, yeah. but the science, the metrics, the, the industry kind of coming together, like there's a lot that still has to happen, but at least, there's a lot of folks that are really bright looking at it <laughs> and, and we just gotta, we gotta have it converge some more so that we can get there. Yeah. Yeah. I got another question here, Ryan, if Cargill is purchasing sustainably grown crops at scale, how do they position the value to the CPG buyers? Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good question. And today I would say we're looking at outcomes, i.e. carbon as another market, right? So you have your physical, so you have your corn, your beans, your wheat, your canola, whatever that is. You pick your market and you sell the physical into those, whatever is the best market for you. And we actually see the outcomes as another market, right? So we've intentionally not said, okay, you know, what you sell is low carbon intensity corn and, and we have an identity preserved supply chain. And it's, you know, it's from, you have all of that. There's markets for that, right? I mean, I think with what you do, Rick, you know, I think that's, you, you have an opportunity to do that and it, it's a, and it can be a great pathway. Yeah. But for us, right. Being in the, the large scale, more commodity space where you have to be able to move 
points of supply to points of demand with as few disruptions as possible, you know, there, there isn't a huge demand today for it, it, at the scale in which we're operating for identity preserved chains, right? And so today I think you're, the, the demand is really about how do you decarbonize kind of from a more of a mass balance or a regional approach that you can associate to the corn, to the soy, to the beans, to the canola, whatever that may be. Yeah. Versus having a, a clearly differentiated supply chain with all of the challenges that come with identity preservation. So it, it's more of where we are at our point and, and kind of how we operate and just more in that, that broader commodity space than than anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got we've got a lot of questions continuing in. I'm just going to stay with them. Okay. Uh, Jerry Hall, thank you so much for tuning in with us. The last round of Climate Smart Ag grants are asking for a deliverable of demonstrating a marketable added value for a commodity. What are some outcomes that Cargill could market that would add value for those commodities that you sell? Yeah, so I think that's, it needs- That's a good question. It is, um, uh, glad that one came up. Yeah, and in the end, I think this idea of, you know, if it's climate smart, right, what are we talking about? We're talking about lower carbon intensity products, the potentially other, right? And I, and I think we need to be thinking about the full, what I would call stack benefits of these systems, right? So not just focusing on the carbon, but also the impacts on water. Um, I think when you can start thinking about how do you quantify the impact of biodiversity, you know, and, and, the, and the farmer, you know, the farmer economic aspect, like trying to think about what does that really mean? So climate smart commodities, I would say that, you know, you're, you're looking at um, an impact with the commodity, right? So today we're kind of separating them, but but you can be associating them too, right? So your corn, you know, you, you grew it under a different, you know, we're, we're, we're driving investment towards, you know, lower carbon intensity corn. What are we really talking about? Well, we're going back to the soil health principles. We're going back to fertilizer management. We're going back to some of those basic elements and, and you're applying that to the corn crop, right? Or you're applying that to your soy or you're applying that to your wheat. And, and, and in the end, I think it's just, it's this association between outcomes measurable outcomes to the physical, um, you know, to be more climate smart, if you will. I think that's the end goal. Right, right. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a good question. I like your answer. Um, again, it just goes back to those, you know, satisfying. Again, I love the way you stated this. You don't want to make this too rigorous that the farmer doesn't want to participate, but yet it's got to be good enough on the back end that it's satisfying the needs of that of that metric. So that's a that's a, a real balancing juggling act you guys are trying to do. Um, let's see here. Uh, I think that this I, I can't see who this is from. It's L O R. It's maybe Lauren. How far off are we from talking eco services versus carbon markets? Yeah, great question. Um. um they're they're starting right i mean i, I referenced we, we, we've got an example in iowa right that, that's working and is great i mean i think it's been a wonderful place for us to be involved in and and i think the the benefits are there um so in what our outcomes fund is right they're, they're ramping that up in a number of different states um ecosystem service market consortium right i mean we're we're esmc will be will be launching uh later this year and um that, that's an ecosystem service market right so it's heavily weighted towards carbon, but they're also looking at water and, 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 and other elements. So I think it's coming. The challenge is, right? So if I, if I distill this down, carbon is carbon, right? It's 
it's, it's a gas, it's kind of everywhere. And so if, you, if you're removing carbon, you're removing carbon from the atmosphere and it's kind of, that can be done anywhere. Versus when you talk about water, it's hyper-local, right? Water is context-based. So water is, you know, you're driving impacts that have such an impact at a very, very, very local level. And so to build water-based markets, it's a, it's a whole different mindset, right? Because it's, it's what is the impact in your context, in your local watershed, in your area? And, it, and, and, and so it's harder to build those markets because it's not just like, hey, I did this thing over here and I can quantify the benefit, you know, three states away or a state away, right? It's, 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 it's localized. And so while I think there's a large interest and a large opportunity, but probably with water next, you just, you have to understand the, the hyper-local nature of water and, and, and why it's more challenging to stand up than carbon, which is, you know, uh, a benefit to carbon is a benefit to carbon, so. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I just want to I want to ask a question out to a, a, one of the people listening that did ask a question. Tom Cannon, you ask, how will you verify? I need just a little bit more specificity there, please. I'm I'm not sure what part of the conversation that question came in on. So if you could add a little bit to that, that would be awesome. Yeah. Let's see what else we've got here, Ryan. Um, if Cargill, this is from Jay Moore. Again, Jay, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. If Cargill is purchasing sustainably grown crops at scale, how do they position the value to the C, CPG buyers? And I already asked you that question. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think this is where, again, what do what do what are downstream buyers really asking for? And 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 a lot of them aren't saying, "Hey, give me a physical." Pro it's I buy a lot of corn-based ingredients. I buy a lot of soy-based ingredients, right? And, and those ingredients have a large emissions footprint. How do we reduce that? And it's not necessarily, you know, it's very hard to market a regenerative ingredient, right? Or it's very hard to market that, that specific thing. There isn't, I think you'll find, I think there's this assumption that consumers just are demanding it. And it, and it, but it's, it is really hard when you think of just how many different food ingredients and, and, and things we sell. Now, if you're Sarah, it's, just, it's tricky. So it's more about how do you meet your objectives and how do you reduce the emissions associated with what you're doing or how do you reduce the impact of those products is what they're asking for. And so versus give me a physical supply or identity preserve supply of something that was grown very specifically. And so we're just, we're not there yet. I think it will come, but but today it's it's more about the broader impacts than it is about that, you know, tracing that physical product. Yeah, but Ryan, I think I think from the farmer's perspective, I think the day's coming where we're going we would like to be paid some kind of a premium for for the these risks that we're we're taking at I mean, to remove all inputs and go organic with no tillage. I mean, where where do we get rewarded for for that that business model that that we're trying to develop and make better all the time? So I mean, I know it's hard because, you know, you, you add my bushels to, to Bob's bushels and all of a sudden they're, they're co-mingled and you've lost all that. So how, how do you see that playing out in the future, though? Yeah. And so it's, it's why today they're kind of you almost separate the outcomes from the physical because it is it's, it's difficult to manage. Um, I would say, you know, you do have your value add markets, right? And I think you're participating in some of them when you get into, you know, whether it's organic or even I think now some of the certifications around regenerative organic. So 
Right. I think if you're further down that pathway, you have the opportunity to go into those those premium type value add markets, right? But in but from the broader commodity lens, today it's still you know trying to differentiate that end product and segregate it. Right. The moment you segregate anything, you're adding cost to a system, right? You're adding inefficiency to a system. You're adding loss to a system, and so and 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 there isn't really a demand there for that yet. So I think it's how do you use market signals to the best they can today to say we care, right? And that's why I think you're seeing the rise of carbon markets and things like that to say, can we at least bring some initial incentives, some initial rewards back to the farm gate, you know, to, to begin that. And then we'll see how this evolves over time. Does it become more about the product line? Does it become more in the future? But, but today, I think that's why you're seeing this kind of se separation of, you know, the actual outcome market from the physical market. Yeah. Well, okay, let's use this analogy. Let's go back, you know, let's go back, what, six years ago. And we were asked to raise non-GMO corn. And at that point in time, I had no idea. It was more like eight years ago. I have no idea if you could even buy non-GMO corn because we are so entrenched now in GMOs. So then your farm starts to shift. So now you we've had to change our whole granary, you know, because part of it was GMO, part of it was non-GMO. But then we made the shift and we're all non-GMO. I mean, and think of how Cargill's changed now. You know, what percent can you do you know, like just out of curiosity, do you know what percent of corn of GMO versus non-GMO that, that Cargill handles in a, in, a, in a year's time? Do you know, do you happen to know those numbers? I don't offhand, but I, I suspect it'll be, it'll, it'll be in line. It'll, it'll mimic what kind of the industry is, right? A, a few percent. Yeah. Best, yeah. What, what percent was that, Ryan? Well, I, I, I think I can't remember what the breakdown is of, of organic and non-GMO. I, I, I used to know this very closely, but I, I'm from, from a cargo lens. I don't know that today, but I well, I don't, it's, it's, it's going to be a few percent for, like similar to what it is when, when you look yeah. across uh, industry. Yeah. I get. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but what my point here is, if we can, as as a as a farming sector, shift from GMOs to non-GMOs and make that work in the marketplace, because that's what the consumer wants. I don't see why we can't do these same things with this regenerative uh, type of farming we're talking about to then reward those those uh, ranchers, those grazers that are bringing you know, pasture raised beef to the industry versus beef that's being raised in a feedlot and, and all these other aspects. I, I just see, I see this and maybe it's because I'm naive and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I could, I see this transition happening easier than what we're being told that it's going to happen. I, I don't know if I'm making any sense here or not, but I just trying to run that correlation between non-GMO to GMO because like I said, 10 years ago, nobody even thought about non-GMOs or very few people did. Now there's all kinds of concerns about non-GMOs or gluten-free or, or all these other food allergies that people are having now. I just see, I think this regenerative uh, is going to become larger and more freely accessible uh sooner than we think that that's that's my opinion yeah and i mean and certainly i mean i think you'll see markets that evolve and develop to that want that very specific and, and, and to me it's it's more about what i would continue to call identity preservation or 
fully traceable systems, right? Where you're you're literally from from your farm all the way to the consumer. You're you're going after a specific, you know, whether you want to brand it yourself or it's a it's a certification, right? And and those those will be there, right? And I I'm, I fully expect these markets will grow for that. Um, it's and there will be opportunity, right? So I think it's it's how do you develop those? Where is the demand for those? I'm just coming at this from you know when you look at the lens of of a Cargill, right? from the world's largest agribusinesses, thinking about how do we scale? And to me, that's in the commodity space going, we need tens of millions of acres to move in a, in a pretty short period of time. And, and to do that, you've, for us, it's about, you, you still need to maintain the integrity of the commodity system, right? Because we need to be able to move flows. I mean, you just think about the volatility between what's happening with drought in South America and you know the, what's happening because of you know, Ukraine right now. I mean, so as you begin to think about moving flows you know that that's a it's a completely different world than than when you have a fully identity preserved supply chain. And so, how do you bring scale, drive large scale impact, drive adoption on millions of acres, but at the same time make sure you know absolutely if you can have a differentiated market, those are great. But I just don't know that we need we there's a demand there or the opportunity there for tens of millions of acres in the next just few years. And so you kind of ha- you have to balance that. How do you how do you support those markets developing? But at the same time, you just need, you need really large scale adoption within the commodity space. Yeah, that, that's going to be so difficult. It's, that's going to be so difficult. Um, Tom Cannon, thank you for, for adding to your question here. Here we go, Ryan. Verify carbon credits or infiltration of water, et cetera, so that end users know with confidence they are not buying and are participating in blue sky feel good programs. So how, how do you view that? That's a great question because I, I sometimes feel like that's what's happening. It, they're, they're, we're telling the people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. So, so what do you think about that? Yeah, so this goes back to, uh, and, and you actually asked me this, uh, or one of the questions earlier was, tell me more about verification. So uh, I'll walk you through an example of, we, we have a, our, our Regen Connect program. We use, uh, we, we partner with Regrow. And and with within Regrow, what we do is, you know, when a farmer chooses to come into that program, um, set up their account, they uh, be able to go in and, and, and find their field, select a field boundary and say, I want to enroll a field, right? And you're going to look and you're going to say, that's my field, that's my field boundary, that's the, that's the field I'm going to enroll in a program. And, you know, you've got with USDA data, right? We've got the soil types, we've got, you know, you can look at historically what was grown there. And as that farmer enrolls, you know, you're gonna go, okay, I'm interested in, I might be looking at, at, at reducing tillage and I'm gonna, I'm gonna plant maybe a rye cover crop to get started. Great, right? We're gonna enroll you. We're gonna, we're gonna set your baseline because it's, those are new things for that field. And we're gonna follow that field from harvest to harvest, right? So you enroll say in September, and we start tracking really what happens on that field starting you harvest in October. And we're going to track the progress on that field all the way through to the following October, right? So, you know, did you reduce tillage or eliminate it? When did you plant a cover crop? Did that cover crop grow all the way through? You know, did you, when did you terminate it, right? Did you, was it, was it on Rick Clark's farm and it went to the middle of June and it was six feet tall and you rolled it and crimped it? Or did you, you know, did you burn it down the first of April, right? So, I mean, watching and, and, and tracking kind of what's happening there all the way through post harvest you know how much residue was left on that field you know what you know was it a corn crop right so you're, you're taking all of that in and then you're gonna go back and you're verify okay this is what happened over the course of that growing season 
we're going to use um, a series of, of modeling tools. So DNDC is, is the tool. Um, and they're going to use Optus as kind of like the imagery, looking at what's going on. Um, and, and we're going to generate what, you know, uh, what, what was the impact of that? What happened over the course of that growing year? Did the grower do what they said they were going to do on that field? Um, there's a degree of soil sampling that comes into this too. Um, we don't, I won't go into all of that, but, but, but that's ultimately, we know we had a field that was enrolled in this program and we can verify what happened on it. We, we can be completely, we're open and transparent about what was the, what, what did we do to measure the impact? And, and, and so when you're providing that to somebody, I can say, yeah, this field was in, you know, Southwest Indiana, you know, in, in these counties and we source, uh, you know, a lot of volume of corn out of that region. So it's aligned with our supply shed and, and, you know, we, we can take that all the way through. So while it's not traceable, right, we're not selling a traceable entity. We know with confidence what happened there. We're verifying, you know, the impact of what happened on that, on that field. And we're, and we're essentially just accounting for that change. And it's tied to, you know, the volumes of, of corn or soy or whatever that we buy out of that, out of that region. So. Yeah, let's see this I mean, Okay, Ryan, are you there? Hmm. Did we lose Ryan? This is frozen. Hey, Come Ryan. On Come on back, Ryan. Mike's All right. There again. Sorry, I lost you. Yeah, and and Ryan, this this is uh, this is awesome because I. I don't know this for a fact, but I, I, we, we know Cargill is, is still a family owned business. It's, it's a massive presence in this, in this industry. Do, do you, do you know, are there other companies that have programs that we've just heard you talk about for almost an hour now? I mean, this is, this is coming from deep within, within Cargill. And this is a program that's, that's that sounds to me like it's going to be viable and and can work in the future with with the farmer are there other major companies that are doing these same types of internal programs that we're talking about here with cargill yeah i mean so there's a there's a whole number out there right i think a lot of your um your seed and input companies are are, are launching similar kind of programs right you've got um you, you know uh, yeah so there, there's a lot out there right there's a lot yeah. of different choices today um, you know, and, and that's part of the challenge, right? As a grower to, to, to kind of differentiate between every, all of your choices that are there today. And I'm sure there'll be more coming, right? And so uh, taking into account, what is it you're signing up for? What's the length of contract? You know, what, are those, what is the burden on data? What is, you know, what, what are payment terms looking like, right? There's just, there's so many things that um, it's challenging, right? It's a lot to, to navigate right now and understand what are you signing up for? So I think, you know, for us, it's been a big deal to just make sure that we're it's you know clearly communicating. We're, we're we're laying out kind of what exactly is of this that you're doing, what are you committed to, and and is it right for you or not? But um, you know, I never would have believed in my wildest dreams that there'd be this many choices in such a short period of time, even that and the interest in this. So there's a lot of tailwinds behind this, right? And um, there's a long way to go yet, but I but I think it's interesting to see how how much focus there is on these markets today. 
Yeah, and again, I, I just cannot thank the audience enough. We've got so many great questions, and Tom Cannon's coming back with another good question. Uh, Ryan, you've laid out your verification process, I think, very well. Did we just, did we lose Ryan? Yeah, I'm sorry we did. Sorry, I'm back. Hey, uh, okay, Ryan, can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. Um, Tom's got another question, and and Ryan, you've laid out your your um, your pro your verification process very well, uh, very understanding. It, it sounds like a great platform. But who who are your your third party verifiers? Um, I assume you have one, but but who are they? Can you tell us? And what's that entail? Yeah. So. Today, uh, we're regrow is is our ver right. They're doing the the verification and everything on our behalf. So it's not us verifying it. They're they're doing that. Um, I think there's a lot of you know there's a lot of question about does there need to be an additional uh, yet another kind of third party certification. There's there's a few different things out there today. We're working in uh, one thing I didn't mention is we're really prioritizing what we would call in setting, right? So we're looking at how do you you know run programs that are within your supply chain. Right. And it's it's different than creating an offset that might go on a carbon registry that you're going to sell outside of your supply chain, tech, airlines, fuel, whatever. And and so within the insetting framework, it's a little bit different. Right. Um, I mean, the payments that farmer experience should be virtually the same, but it's about how we decarbonize in the supply chain. And so I think right now, understanding, you know, um, what will the industry expect over time, the, the additional degree of certification, all of that. When you add more and more certification on top, it adds additional cost, right? And it just and it adds additional complexity. And so, like we've been saying all night, right? We're trying to get to where's that balance between, you know, the least amount of burden on the grower and the highest degree of trust we can bring. And so we're constantly looking at, you know, we want to make sure that we have certainly the the trust and the rigor in what we're delivering, balanced with programs that growers will engage in. And so we, we just, we're gonna to have to continue to make sure that if we need additional certification, certainly we'll, we'll, we'll go to that, um, you know, as necessary, but 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 it can't be at the expense of, you know, farmers not participating. So we're, we're, we're trying to manage that. Right, and I'll tell you what I really respect about what we've talked about the most here this evening. You folks understand that if this does not go well for the farmer at the get-go, it's over. So you, you've got to make this program work for these farmers. I mean, we, we know we're not gonna get rich by this carbon market. It's just another tool to put in that toolbox to help augment what we're already doing. But what I like about it is, is that you're now implementing the soil health principles to get to that end game. So you're accomplishing many things here by by implementing by implementing those, those those parts of the of this of this system which now leads me into a question i'm going to ask you this is coming from me now how do the people that are out in front trailblazing who've been doing this for many many years how how are we going to be able to participate because the things we keep hearing is you're, you're going to have to participate by by continually taking things away. Well, for a lot of us here, we've taken about everything we can. So how do you see that playing out? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the hard one. I mean, let's just, I'll be completely honest. It's a super hard one because this whole concept of additionality is really hard. And so what I'll actually say in, in, is that when you go back to why are you doing this? What's the value of what you're doing? You know, I, I, I've heard you talk about your, your, the benefits on a, a, your net return per acre, your profitability doing what you do. And, you know, versus a carbon payment. And if you think about something that may yield 10 or 15 or 20 bucks an acre versus where I think I have a strong sense of where, you, you know, where, you, where your benefits and your profitability long-term in the end, would you, you know, what you've, your investments have far outweighed this, right? You're, you're yielding returns on having been a pioneer invested in regenerative agriculture and being where you are today. It's paying yeah. economic dividends along with all of the other things in your farm. And so maybe that's not a popular response, but I would just say if the end goal is to advance the system that's more resilient and more profitable, if you've already been adopting that and you're well on your journey towards it and you're realizing the benefits from it, you know, you're already there, right? You're already realizing it yeah. now. And when, as you start to think about differentiated markets, as you start to think about where is, how do you get into some of those higher value niche markets or, or, or value add markets, it, you're well positioned to go after this, right? You're in a well position to be able to meet those. And so it's not a simple solution, right? The last thing you want to do is penalize somebody who's been doing the right, who's already adopted these things and saying, sorry, there's no pathway. You know, there probably are opportunities. They might just not be as big as if you're very new to the new to this. But keep in mind, the big picture here isn't about the carbon market or isn't about a carbon payment. It's about the benefits of the system in the long run. And you're already realizing it. So. No, that that's a great answer. That really is a great answer, because I'll be honest with you. I do not think about these carbon mark. I do not think that someday I'm going to be getting twenty five dollars. That this does not in my registry. I am thinking of other ways to improve the farm. And I, I, I've never had anybody answer that question the way you just did. And that's why you and I get along so well. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, another one from Tom, Tom, Tom Cannon. If if we participate, are we also locked into selling products to Cargill? Any other strings attached? I assume he's referring to the programs you've mentioned uh, about your your market. So, what do you what do you think about Tom's question there? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so, no, um, I mean you have to have a so. To enroll, you need a Cargill account, essentially, right? But there's no requirements to sell grain or physical to Cargill, right? You can participate in the program um, by creating an account and signing up. Uh, you know, assuming, right, we're in, uh, we've we've rolled this out in six states this last year, and um, I believe we'll be expanding that in this coming growing season. So this summer we'll, we'll be in a, in a bigger geography, but it's available regardless of whether you sell a physical to us or not. But you, you would need to have a Cargill account, but that's that's the, that's the only requirement. No, that, that's that seems pretty simple to me. So um, we're working on hey, the easy button. <laughs> you need the yeah. easy button as much as possible. Yeah. Well, I'll I tell you, this has been very refreshing because it's a totally different um, concept than I have been around. You you are truly geared toward making this as simple 
for the farmer as possible. And I think that's important because, you know, Ryan, we hear these horror stories that if you're going to sit down and, and participate, it takes days to input this data, you know, just to get to, to play ball here. Um, do you have a portal or a mechanism to help that, you know, that transition into an easier, uh, less cumbersome uh, uh, ordeal? And that was a very key um, effort on, is when we designed this, right? And when we picked partners, right? The, the Regrow was a phenomenal partner that enabled us to be able to, to make that a, a positive experience and, and reduce that burden, right? And it's, we just keep coming back to, if you put too many barriers in place or too many burdens on the grower and they're going, I give up before I ever start, like you've lost. And so we, we really emphasize that, 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 that first experience, that portal, that, that ease of being able to get in and, select your field, you know, un, you know, look at different options for, for what this, you know, you, you might choose different practice changes on your farm and understand what that could potentially mean for your soil types on your farm. Like we, we really tried to work hard to make that as, as easy and, and understandable and, and low burden as possible. And I think um, it, it's a, it's a key point, right? I mean, it's just, it's different when you start with you guys in mind and you go, how do you, you know, what, what's going to, engage you and, and 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 bring you guys along on this is it's everything so yeah well ryan this has been fascinating we've had tremendous audience response here i think there was 12 about 12 questions came from the audience uh, i'm going to wrap this up but i want i'd like to hear some closing comments on on everything we've talked about or maybe things we didn't touch on is there something you'd like to add to so uh go ahead and, and take us home here no, again, I just um, thank you for, for being on here, right? I, I don't know if I really shared, right? But, you know, I met you, you know, five or six years ago. And and you, you're the, I, I, I'm not just saying this, but you had such a profound impact on the choices that I've made, right? I'm, I'm doing this in large part today because you showed me what is possible at scale, right? You showed me that you could take us, you know, 7,000 acre farm and and push the limits of what's possible and so that helped me see that those it's way out there right we, there's there's all kinds of things you can do and that doesn't mean that every farm should be going down that pathway right i have you know i i, I work with I, I farm with our neighbors right i do a lot up here and i'm going we have limitations here we, we're in different places and 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 it's it's i don't care if you're taking your first step or or you're pushing the absolute limits and boundaries of what's possible but to know that it's possible and to know that you can do it at scale gives me the hope to say, we can go out here and do this. We can strive for advancing regenerative agriculture on millions of acres in, in this country and around the world. Like it's possible. And, and not only is it possible, like it is, it is within reach. And so I get excited, right? I get wound up when I, when I think about what we could achieve if you just engage in a way that gets people excited to take the first step or the 10th yeah. step or the yeah. 50th step, but it's like, keep going, right? Get started, get going, move on. And, you know, and I just, I applaud you for, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you've got this podcast and that you're reaching a bigger audience. And I hope if you've had even remotely the same impact on others that you've had on me, you know, that's an awesome thing. Um, so well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to be here. Um, it's about this space. Let's go grow it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, well, Ryan, thank you. It, it's been a pleasure and, and I truly, you've enlightened a lot of us here with with Cargill's passion for this 
and your passion. I can see it. I hear it. I feel it. So thank you so much. Uh, again, thank you, Ryan. Ryan Soroli Cargill, thank you so much. Thanks next, so week, much folks, next week, folks. Next week, folks, Russell Hedrick and Lance Gunderson, you are not going to want to miss that one. So we'll see you next time. Ryan, again, thank you. Have a great evening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.